Did your mustache tickle your nose? I had to, had to trim it, man. I kept doing the, yeah. Like I would just pull it. Uh huh. Yes. I get stuff caught in it. It's it's time to go. Yeah. It's time for it to leave. I'm gonna cut my mustache's head off, and then it's gonna come back later after it's, haunting my house. As a as a bigger mustache, yeah, it'll be a it'll be a larger mustache. I'm like, wait, are you my mustache that I cut off? My mustache just like comes out of the water and like crawls up and yeah, sits sits on a stump. Yeah. My mustache got pregnant and then it disappeared and we don't even know whether my mustache was real at all. Hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, episode 24. In this episode, we are talking about Toni Morrison's Beloved. I am Ryan and with me is my good buddy and fellow host, Jacob. Yes, hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, our little book club, book cult, book something or other. Episode 24, Beloved, Toni Morrison, you said it, but I'm going to say it again because I just said it. In case they forgot. In case they forgot. It's going to be an interesting episode and uh, they're all interesting, but this will be interesting for maybe a little bit different reasons, but uh, of note, this is our first ever episode with back-to-back Pulitzers. It so is. you could say this might be the most critically acclaimed episode if you're using the transitive property of critically acclaimed books. We're not going to go there. We're, yeah. Well, we are going to go there. We are going to go there. But, but not, not right now. Not, not in the intro. We're not going to take so much credit for how critically acclaimed this episode is going to be. But no, a pretty standard episode we've got for you today. We're going to tell you a little bit about the author, Toni Morrison, give you a brief summary and then, of course, we're just going to jump into it. Going to have a little bit more today, maybe. I, I know a big thing about this book that, that we want to talk about is kind of the style choices that we've got in there. But again, we'll get to that. And then, of course, at the end, we're going to give you our three-tier patented. Yes. Patented, trademarked, three-tier rating system. Four if we're giving it away. Five, of course, if we decide to cut the book's head off. And maybe it comes back later as a slightly larger book. And there's all sorts of issues with that. Yes. But uh, yeah, of course. And then uh, we'll tell you what we got coming up on our next episode. Yes. So if you haven't read the book, ask yourself right now before you go any further in this episode, if you want to listen to a podcast about a book you haven't read. If the answer is yes, then please continue. Uh, If the answer is no, go pick up the book, read the book and then come back because that's how book clubs work. And that's kind of sort of what we are. Kind of. So with that, we should talk about... Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison, take it away. Nobel Prize in Literature, Toni yes. Morrison. So, Toni Morrison, real name. Is this or, our first? Is this, hold on. Is yes. this our first? This is our first Nobel Prize in Lit person. Or, uh, or did. Uh, mm, that's a good question. I, did Roth or Pinchon? I no, feel like I don't think them. they won a Nobel. I think I think this is the this first, our first Nobel. Nobel yeah, I'm, I'm literally looking at my bookshelf and nothing jumps out at me. We have we've read several Pulitzer prize-winning writers, but I don't think we have a Nobel. Okay. Um, so, yes, uh, she won the Nobel, uh, won a Pulitzer for Beloved in 1988. Uh, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, but I will jump back to her her beginnings. She was actually born uh, Chloe Ardelia Wofford. I didn't know that that was like she had a pen name. Well, it might be her actual name now. Anyway, she was born in uh, 1931. Uh, she teaches at Princeton. 
um, University. Uh, I feel like somebody else we, we read uh, was at Princeton. I cannot remember who, though. Um, other notable works, uh, Song of Solomon, The Bluest Eye, which I almost picked up the other day. Don't think I will. Um, interesting thing about her, I found her early life to be somewhat similar to kind of the, the setting we see here. So she uh, was born in Lorraine, uh, Ohio, and uh, her dad worked for like a, a steel company and they were, you know, kind of a working class family um, in like an inner, uh, a, a integrated community. And uh, so you kind of get that feel from the setting of this book. I forget the, the name of the, the city. Do you remember in Beloved? No. <laughs> I don't, oh, Cincinnati. Oh, yeah, Dumb, yeah, yeah. Dummy. Anyway. Yeah, in Ohio. Uh, so, yeah, w- one interesting thing that I, that I ran across, uh, Morrison's parents got behind on the rent, and uh, their white landlord went and set fire to the house because uh, they, uh, well, I, it says landlord. I shouldn't apply race, but I'm going to assume white landlord just given the the time period but uh yeah and so she they ended up um having what she called uh this bizarre form of evil laughing (laughs) at the landlord instead of like being in despair as like a affront to him burning down his own property yeah that doesn't seem like a very good way of recouping your uh like lost rent yeah very interesting um so yeah i mean we could we could go on. I mean, she's uh, she's been all over the place as far as um, honorary degrees, and uh, she's highly regarded, by far the most highly regarded uh, author that we have read to date. Do you read anything interesting about her that I may have missed? Uh, n- not exactly. Uh, I did get a quote from her that I had really liked um, that I wanted to share. She had gone on to say, and again, I've kind of like echoed this idea, but she said, fiction should be beautiful and powerful, but it should also work. It should have something in it that enlightens, something in it that suggests what the conflicts are, but it need not solve those problems because it is not a case study. It is not a recipe. I like that a lot as far as just the idea of kind of writing fiction as a means of sort of conveying some powerful emotion or story, but not necessarily, you know, when we're talking about the subject matter exclusively, like in this book, for example, or in any book where you sort of highlight problems maybe that exist within society or within, you know, society of historical context and stuff. It's not, it's not trying to, uh, lay out exactly solutions or it's not trying to lay out, you know, it's not trying to solve problems. It's, it's trying to tell a story. And like, I, I appreciate that and I respect that. And, you know, I, again, and we'll kind of, we're kind of segueing, I guess now into the book proper, but another book that, uh, when you read it, it, you know, you get uncomfortable reading it. And I think that that's a very powerful effect to, to have in fiction. So one thing I forgot, one thing you forgot, she won a Grammy for best spoken word. Okay, shit. All right. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a pretty good it's not an EGOT. She doesn't have the EGOT, but she's got, you know, President Medal of Freedom, the Nobel Prize, a Pulitzer, and a Grammy. So that would be a Pun Pug. President's Nobel Pulitzer Grammy. We'll 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 work on that. A yeah, pun they're, they're, a pumpkin. A pun pun. <laughs> a pun pug. It's not quite an EGOT, but it's close. No. Uh, 
Okay. Let's hear your book summary. Oh, yeah. I want to hear this. This is quite a summary. A little brief and dirty summary. Uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison is a story about Setha, a former slave woman who killed one of her own children out of the fear of them being uh, taken back into slavery and how the guilt of that literally haunts her in mysterious ways. Literally. It literally haunts her. It's true. It is true. All right. All right. So I want to... I want Band-Aid sh- off. I w- Just yeah, rip I, the Band-Aid well, off because uh, there have been little hints throughout the, the course of, I guess, the intro and talking about it. Um, but we have some hang-ups with this book. Yeah. And uh, I think a vast, overwhelming, like 90% of them are stylistic choices and writing style choices. And I know, you know, the first thing I thought of when we came in with this book, um, when I'm looking at the style stuff, it very much reminded me a lot of Blood Meridian and a lot of the, the mm-hmm. potential hangups you had with yeah. uh, with McCarthy. Mm-hmm. And so I was just eager to see, because I know I, even I, you know, I kind of got, I, I looked past that. And, and in some ways I kind of looked past it in this book too, but there's just so much in there that I I just assumed that you were going to come in hot and ready to fire on some of these like stylistic choices here. Yeah, so I just want to preface everything that I will say in this episode in regards to criticism with with a few things. So the the reason I'm doing this is is that, you know, anytime that I have a very strong negative reaction to a book, I always go and try to hunt out um whether it's, you know, on book discussion subreddits uh or uh there are plenty of forums and stuff for online where where people discuss books. I always try to see like Am I am I just off base? Am I missing something? Or yeah. are there other people that, that feel this way? And the thing that I saw um, for people who express negative opinions is a lot of people jumping on them uh, for expressing those negative opinions, calling them, you know, racist or, you know, trying to subvert their uh, who they are as people, whether you're a, a man, uh, a white man, uh, you know, wh- whatever it is that you can't understand themes of feminism or, uh, you know, slavery or all of struggle these, or all, anything. Yeah. yeah. So that kind of kind of made me a bit nervous um, in the sense that you know, I don't I, I don't come to this ep- to this episode you know with with any sort of um, intent to to knock down a very like you know celebrated writer on you know the basis of of gender or race or a- anything related right yeah. when we do this podcast we pick books that have some sort of literary significance uh are, are you know something maybe that's that's new and upcoming or have some sort of important uh contribution to the genre they're written in like asimov right for sci-fi sure right? Um, our intent when we come to these, these episodes, you know, we, we don't, we don't approach this as book critics. We are not here to, to review books and recommend books necessarily. Um, Even though we kind of do. Well, we, I mean, we do. Through the natural process. Yeah. We don't do it. We have a very (laughs) rudimentary system and, uh, you know, 90% of it is based on the fact it's like, well, did you like the book? Right. (laughs) Did you enjoy the book? Okay. We're not... You know, I, we don't really break down. There's not really a, you know, a rubric as to what constitutes, you know, functionally a good book from, right. a, from you know, a literary perspective for us. It's a lot of it is just kind of gut and, well, would you recommend it? Did you like it? This, that, and the other. And I think more importantly, it's 
it's just important to be consistent with the things that you like and, and yeah. not so much worry about, uh, worry about, you know, what criticism may come with liking or disliking something. Right. And I, and I think that, you know, we've, we've talked about, you know, trying to expand these discussions and use technology to potentially bring people into that. And if we really did create some kind of, you know, uh, community based discussion around books, you know, I don't want this podcast to ever be, you know, something where, you know, we're, it's contentious by any means. But I think that at the heart of what we're trying to do is we're trying to read things that, that we think are important in some way and have a discussion about those. And I think that when you deal with something that is as critically acclaimed as this, that doesn't necessarily, you know, approach the level of, you know, just sort of normal enjoyment for your average person. I think you need to have a discussion about why, why is this book critically acclaimed? So that is my disclaimer. I know it's like five freaking minutes of, yeah, of conversation, but I, I think I Way think to bring important. the mood down, Ryan. So with, with all of that said, I think that the, the narrative style of this book is brutal and I think it subverts everything that is good about this book in the worst ways possible. Uh, yeah, I can get behind that. I mean, if you haven't uh, cat caught on yet, neither of us are super high on this book. Um, and not for a lack of having like an interesting story or interesting like themes or ideas to capture. But yeah, it feels as though if this book were written by somebody who maybe wasn't, I don't know. Toni Morrison, like, you can see the level of, like, skill in the writing, but it feels a lot of times to be, like, too much. Like, it's being written, it's being written as a means of kind of, like, showing all of this technique and all of this, you know, elaborative uh, description skills and, and showing how we kind of want to move the narrative style around. Like we'll have some stream of consciousness, some first person, then we'll have sort of like omniscient narrator style from different viewpoints and, yeah. and looking in that. And then we have a lot of, uh, intermixing sort of past with present, um, with kind of a disjointed narrative from, a from like a linearity is concerned with our time. And it's just, it's all of these literary sort of techniques or it feels like it's all of these techniques that are used normally somewhat sparingly to kind of like enhance bits of, of stories or to kind yeah. of like add a little element to it. I mean, we've even talked in the past, you know, stream of consciousness, the whole idea behind creating something that is um, more represent, more representative of like the way that we take in information or the way that we, you know, uh, go through life, you know, things aren't just sort of, easily narrated out linear, like linear. And, um, yeah, like I can respect all of those, those things, but it, it feels like too much. It feels like, like every, like you're just throwing everything you can into this book from a, from a literary standpoint of like every technique imaginable to try to spice up this narrative. And it just, it makes it such a slog to get through pages feel like they take, you know, 15 minutes just to like get, just to read through a page, you feel like you've gone through five, six pages already. And it's, it just takes away from what could be like a super, super enjoyable and interesting concept. Like the whole concept of, of 
the the fantasy element, the haunting, and 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 whenever Beloved comes back, and just like all of the effects that this has on on Zetha and the household, and all of this, it's so like an interesting idea, and it's just completely dragged down from start to finish for me by all of the style, all of the choices, all of the incredibly long, you know, metaphorical and uh, you know just symbolic description and then you couple that with like colloquial grammar usage and speech patterns between characters and then you couple that with just different shifting points of view and it's just it just at the heart of it it just doesn't make for a really enjoyable read like it's an interesting it's an interesting story but god is it not fun to read yeah and so i want to i want to actually like get very detailed in, in on some of these these like styles. So so the first one I wanted to talk about was the um this sort of like omniscient super close like narrator yeah. where we're we're minds jumping between yeah. all of our different characters. And on on one hand, um you know, I think that's really interesting to get different perspective. Absolutely. But the way in which Morrison does it, it's not immediately always clear who you're in um, at any point in time. And I think that her utilization of um, talking about their their thoughts takes away from any sort of like action in the world or the moment that we're in at any given point in time. Because you have these, these sweeping paragraphs um, of just abstract thought yeah. And, you know, this this book is a lot of just sort of like existential, um, like just sort of churning in these characters. And, you know, you, you get the same things repeated, you know, over and over again, um, you know, with with differing levels of clarity as as things go on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, th- I think that that for me was was so problematic is is not having any sort of sense of movement in uh, large pieces of this book. Frankly, the first like two portions of this yeah. um, just didn't have the, the, the movement. So, I mean, did you, did you like that narrative decision to do like the mind hopping between the characters or? Uh, I mean, I think again, it's like stream of consciousness. It works. Okay. It works with its intended goal of, trying to create a more representative sort of narrative based on like how you would actually experience something or how people actually experience things and kind of getting your mind in that state and sort of turning their consciousness into your consciousness and then kind of like elevating your own sort of understanding of this, you know, like period of, of life for, you know, for our country. Because I think one of the things about this book too, that, is an interesting thing to get into, but I just felt was hindered by the way it was written is just, you know, last week we did, we did underground railroad, um, both highly praised it. Yeah. As far as like the, the unique sort of fantasy elements and capturing kind of the time period of slavery. Um, and then we sort of get that open-ended end at the end. And, right. And I think that's, in some ways, the most interesting part of the nugget of, of, of like what happens after, right? When, yeah. Whenever it's, you now have this sort of post-slavery society where you're now, it's like, okay, well, how do you sort of 
integrate all of these, all of these, you know, freed slaves and how do they sort of live kind of as like collective units now? And how do you, how do they, you know, uh, adjust with, you know, minimal to nothing as far as assistance, um, from, you know, government or communities at large. And, you know, you have this expectation of just like, all right, well, you're free now. So go do your thing. But you know, it's like you've had generations of people that have been kind of enslaved in this, in this, uh, system. And how do you just flip a switch all of a sudden and, and sort of bring that that group of people to to where they need to be especially if it's just like yeah you know go for it you know you're on your own now you guys are you guys are free you can do it and so like that whole element of time that plays in here is is really interesting but i i've got like so off topic here on this but um it's okay the stream of con i don't know it's just the the stream of consciousness bit it works when that's used like in small instances. Right. When right. it's not just kind of the main driving force behind this. And then you couple that with just everything else. Yeah. And, and I think that it would have worked better had it been utilized consistently throughout the book. Yeah. I mean, you get um, in the, I think it was the, the third part. Um, it, at least in my copy, it started, I think on page 236, where you get the chapters from uh, from Setha, Denver, and Beloved, where it yeah. starts, you know, I'm I'm Beloved's mother, uh, or Beloved is my daughter, whatever. And, and yeah. then um, you get these weird, like, breaks throughout there that suddenly she just interjects a, a very inconsistent style into into this. And I, I think when you, when you look at it in its entirety, it is... It's exactly, you know, what you said earlier. It's this just amalgamation of of stylistic choices that completely subverts the narrative because you're struggling to just keep up with what Morrison is is trying to deploy as her storytelling techniques. Yeah. And I think in that regard, it's like I I have more respect for McCarthy's like ridiculousness when it comes to some of his stuff than I yeah. do for for Morrison's like narrative choices because at least McCarthy is consistent in the things that I dislike about and some him. of it's consistently bad yeah but. yeah but 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 at least you know you, you never really struggle to 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 you know grasp um the the style choices of of McCarthy like yeah. he just he is what he is as much as I don't like that <laughs> that stuff either sure um so one of the uh, one of the other things that you hit on was was the metaphors. I had a very specific one that I wanted to to talk about. Was there one that really just it's gr- a strawberry one? It's yeah. a strawberry yeah. one that grind your gears as a little well. Bit. Okay, yeah. I actually I actually want to read this one because I I want to be very like finite about what it is that that I didn't like about this. So this this was on page seventy six in in my copy again. I don't don't know how this sorts out in everybody else's but it's at the beginning of uh of of a chapter it says beloved was shining and paul d didn't like it women did what strawberry plants did before they shoot out their thin vines the quality of the green changed the vine threads came then the buds by the time the white petals died and the mint colored berry poked out the leaf shine was gilded tight and waxy that's how beloved looked gilded and shining paul d took to having seth walk uh, walking so that uh, later when he went down the white stairs where she made bread under beloved's gaze, his head was clear. So 
she she or she has this extended metaphor in Paul D's like mind about strawberries. Yeah, from and, his perspective. And, and beloved, right? Yeah. She doesn't you know bring back strawberries anywhere at any point in time so there's there's no like you know long-term tie to like you know fruit or you know gardening or anything anything Mm -hmm. of that nature i guess you can you could make an argument that you know maybe maybe that ties back to the uh the choke cherry blossoms on on setha's back you know that that are mentioned several times throughout so maybe maybe but that's a stretch but my problem with this is that morrison has this this you know extended metaphor in, in several sentences and then just says this is how beloved looked and the my problem with that is that it's it's not specific it's not it, it's not like referencing something like her uh the way she carried herself uh you know maybe uh the way she decided to dress the the way that you know her face yeah. looked maybe she she looked you know uh she was smiling more than than uh, than she did previously, or she had he had she had done her hair, or you know something concrete that like tied it together, and that's my problem with these metaphors is that you, that she deploys is you get these these big flowery swaths of of stuff, and then it's just like no, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. There's there's another one um, where I think this was on two fourteen, where she was. Um, talking about um so this is when when the girls had gone uh ice skating and then they were laying on the floor yeah afterwards the next morning um setha comes downstairs and uh this is on page yeah 214 quietly carefully she stepped around her to wake the fire first a bit of paper then a little kindling not too much just a taste until it was strong enough for more she fed its dance until it was wild and fast and that's that's it. Like you just get this. She's she's starting up the fire. There's no like extended metaphor or reference to that fire at any point in time. But she just focuses in on this little like this little action. And the problem is she doesn't do that consistently enough. Yeah. To make it not very noticeable about what she's trying to do, which is to interject like this stylistic metaphor, and it's completely unnatural. Yeah. And like it's just it's it's like a bad quilt. If I could equate this book to anything, it's it's like you take these these patches of like you know beautiful like cloth and you put them together in like the just most hideous way possible and hold yeah. it up and everybody's like yeah it's a blanket and it, yeah it almost seems like it's you're kind of working with a formula here where it's like all right well I need this amount of you know like elaborative description in here in order to meet whatever quota in my mind that I have for this. So, all right, we'll just put it in here. Yeah. We'll put it in here. We'll put it in here. They don't have, there's no specific seeming purpose behind it other than to just kind of, like you said, just create sort of more flowery uh, language. I, I don't know. I think, and and I hate this, but I think it's the association some people have um, when it comes to, well, really any sort of expression of like creativity, whether it's painting, whether it's uh, acting, music, literature, for example, is that complexity is good. That 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 if something is complex in its execution or, or doing something, then that makes it good. That makes yeah. it that makes it have value 
higher than something else that is simple. Well, that's simple to make. So that or that's, you know, simply written right. or that's a story or that's, you know, a music piece that's very simple and its chord progressions are very simple in this. And so because of the complexity, you know, inherent in this, then that makes it uh, worthy of higher praise because of it. And I don't know, it just it feels it feels just disingenuous kind of as a means of just like having that layer of complexity and not necessarily saying, okay, what is the, how am I going to, how am I going to tell this story in the most, you know, most digestible way possible, which I think is honestly, I think should be kind of the core of every book, every work of fiction that's made. It's the, the most important thing is finding your story, finding your voice, finding your characters, finding this other stuff. And then telling that in the easiest and most digestible way possible um, that it retains all of the, I don't know, all of the necessary bits that you want to include in it. I, I, I hate the idea of like dressing stuff up for the sake of having it look better or having it because it's like, well, if I just tell a story, you know, simply and I don't go into great elaborative depths about sure. every little minute freaking thing that's happening all the time and I'm not jumping between characters and switching POVs and doing yeah. all this stuff, then maybe my book will be thought of as like less or beneath, you know, what, you know, what critically acclaimed fiction is. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you know, I think that I, dis I disagree with you on a, on a point um, as... Me as as uh, you and again, know, I'm not a writer, a writer so well, no, no, no. Know, but I'll I get it from me, your perspective. Me, me as a writer, I definitely agree. Like that's how I approach things because I don't want somebody trying to fight me as as a writer to understand what I'm what I'm trying to write about. So sure, you know, my thing is that I, I I want to be as as clear and as concise as I can about things. However, I do think that there are times where a narrative style does lend itself to enhancing the story, right? Think back to uh, The Sound and the Fury when we get the uh, the perspective of um, who, was the, who was the mentally challenged uh, character. I cannot remember that, that guy's name. But we get his perspective, the, the first-person narration yeah. from him. And, you know, I think that, that, in, that in that way, Faulkner... You know, uses the narrative style, the the disjointed language. Yes, Benji. that's right. I, didn't, I was looking it up, but I didn't have to. I remembered it's Benji. Yeah. So, um, from from his perspective, I think the narrative style lent something to him as a character sure. to 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 that whole story, and and that was another story where you know you were jumping around, you know, different perspectives and and narration, right? Um, but I think that that has to work for the story that you're you're telling, and I don't yeah. think that any of her her narrative style or choices in here lend itself to the the larger conversations about you know community about family about womanhood about slavery um all of the the super important motifs that that go on here um and it, it's just it's it's just like this sort of dangerous like distraction i think from from what is otherwise a very compelling concept yeah like we've said several times at this point um, okay. I, we could, we could do the whole episode on, on narrative choices, but I do want to get in and just look past that into stuff the story into the, just, into but, the, yeah, we'd be doing a disservice to the episode if we didn't get into 
are hangups primarily with the book, which yes, I would say ninety percent of them are just about choices made uh, on how to write the book and and how to execute the story, and not necessarily with the story itself. Yes, because again, interesting interesting time period, and like I said, you know, uh, last week I know you were kind of. Um, or not last week, but last episode, you were kind of like taken aback a little bit when I, with kind of the the gruesomeness that we were like uh, confronted with like super mm-hmm. early on. And that continues. I mean, this yep. book, again, yep. I, I appreciate the fact that it does not pull in any punches as far as the the violence, as far as just the 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 gruesomeness, just the awfulness of of this time period and of slavery and of even sort of the issues post-slavery um like it's it's all in there and it's all kind of like confronting you when you're reading this book it's it's very powerful in that effect that it has with that but um i you know i don't think um i don't think that the sort of fantasy element like i when i when i first started reading it and and first kind of like got the gist of what this was about and that it's you know it's loosely based kind of on a story, but at the same time yeah. you have these, these fantasy elements of it's a ghost story, you know, at, at the heart of it, it's right. a, it's a ghost story. So you have these fantasy elements and I don't know if it was as kind of seamlessly, um, interwoven in there as, as the last book as underground railroad. Cause again, I can't help but have comparisons between the two. That's part of the reason why I picked this book was because we are kind of like in this same mind state. Um, we have these same sort of elements of, fantasy sort of interwoven in these in these two stories and um i don't know if it's exactly fair to compare them but i will uh, <laughs> because that's just how people's brains work we're constantly comparing things to other things all the time and i feel like that's the easiest way to 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 get a point across but how did you feel about the haunting how did you feel about how um beloved even early on when uh, you have the the haunting at 124 and then later whenever Beloved, the figure shows up, how, how did you feel about how that was handled in the book? Um, so I thought, I thought it was interesting. And so I immediately went back to, and I've, I've mentioned in, in other episodes that, you know, I, I read, um, I read, uh, I took an entire course in college about voodoo literature. So yeah. I, I learned something about, um, you know, African like storytelling and, and like Caribbean storytelling and like voodoo and, um, and all of that. And, you know, so there, I, I think there is definitely sort of a nod to that, um, that style or the, of storytelling where, you know, you do have, you know, sort of the, the spiritual activity. Um, so I, I didn't like, I, I didn't expect it necessarily like coming into this book because I wasn't I wasn't really as I usually do. I don't read a lot about the books you read before I read them because yeah. I kind of want a, a clean slate. Um, but once I realized, you know, that that she was, you know, sort of a ghost in that vein, I, I wasn't waiting for her to be like, you know, the the runaway that, you know, uh, that people thought she might be or anything like that. But yeah. So I liked the nod um, and and the the spiritual nature and it's just you know it's something you you have to I think accept um, as you know part of part of the book. Did you have a feeling about well you the know ghost? You, you always are kind of I mean I'm on the I'm I'm in camp. It's the ghost of beloved, but 
from what I gather from this, there is, and, and you know, there are little bits either here and there that kind of can lead you into uh, the direction of, is it a literal haunting? Is this like a literal ghost story or is it more allegorical as far as like the things that are happening with the household and whether this is just sort of the guilt of everything that sort of manifests itself sure. into the energy, you know, the negative energy of the people in that house. Um, but I'm on team. It's a ghost. Yes. And, uh, because I like some fantasy injected into my, uh, you know, pseudo historical fiction writing. But, um, one of the things that we got in here, and again, sorry, relating it back to underground railroad is a lot of the sort of mother daughter dynamic. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas we got, we got less of it, obviously, in Underground Railroad, but it was a big sort of driving point as to, you know, our pro tags, like, you know, mentality behind where she's going and what she's doing. Right. And in this, you know, you get a lot more, I mean, if, if anything, the mother-daughter or, or just mother-child um, dynamic is really all this book is, or, or it's the heart of the sort of, like, human dynamic in here is is dealing with that. And you even get kind of the interaction with sort of the mother's love for the child and like how, how that manifests with, with Setha, you know, killing one of her children because she would rather them die than because she loved them and would rather them die than have to suffer under slavery again or that they would all die. And some, you know, they all believe that they would pass on to the next world and be, you know, together and be free of this. And, um, and then kind of later on that guilt and that connection with beloved sort of, you know, she's wasting away and she's spending all of her energy and time on this. And just the idea of, I don't know if obsessive, but that just incredibly powerful love or incredibly powerful, uh, connection that a mother has with her child. You know, I don't yeah. know cause I'm not a mother. Um, right. I have a mom, so I, I can understand <laughs> from more of the, the child's, uh, perspective on that because you know i still am kind of a child but uh, <laughs> yeah what what were your thoughts on that in here with that and 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 <sighs> that i know that's that was a dynamic that i i thought was interesting and i thought could have been uh that that was one of the primary things that kind of i thought got hung up with with the style choices in here was not getting to fully like do a deep dive into that sort of relationship and into that sort of idea of, you know, cause even Paul, you know, he brings it up with sort of the, the intensity of that love for the, yeah, for, yeah. for the child and how detrimental that can be. And yeah, he calls it too thick. Yeah. Too thick. You know, the idea of, you know, like, uh, in relation to sort of the animal world, you know, we've got two legs, not four. Cause yeah. often animals will call their, you know, call their, their children whenever it's, you know, they, know that they won't be able to survive or it's too harsh or something like that. And it's kind of like, wow, that like very like primal animalistic instinct that exists, you know, even in human beings today with us, you know, that it's kind of that, that separator is that intensity of that, that sort of action. I did appreciate the irony of, of Paul D saying that after he's had coitus with cows during slavery. So there, there's a nice irony there. Um, yeah, the, the thing that, that I think is, is interesting and I, I don't want to, I want to have a slightly little separate conversation about Setha's act, um, with, with her children. Um, but I think it's very fascinating to see how Setha's, um, 
guilt and obsession for beloved um completely takes over like her maternal instinct she ignores denver yeah and and i mean really throughout if you think about it um i mean once it becomes much more uh evident that like toward the end that denver is like never left the house or the property yeah um she her mother never invests in her the way that that she invests in beloved um you know even up to the point of of beloved appearing and then certainly thereafter denver yeah. just becomes an afterthought and so it kind of um you know subverts everything that you know setha is as a mother when she's willing to to ignore the flesh and bone child in front of her and embrace the guilt um, and sort of reparations that that are owed to beloved for, you know, her, you know, killing her. Yeah. Although one could argue that, you know, if uh, if she really thinks that, you know, beloved is there and there's there's really no there's no debt to repay for Setha. Right. Like she she reappears and everything is fine. What she did was, you know, horrible, but also somehow in some form beloved you know survived it he came yeah. back as a ghost so she was successful no harm no foul um the only thing that that i mean i'm, I'm to, yeah. from a very logical standpoint right <laughs> yeah. um so there's really no guilt to have because you know nothing nothing happened other than you know she obviously does feel guilt and you know feels like she has to to repay those things but yeah i setha i think is is really a terrible mother in in real time and i and i would like to ask the question was she a good mother or a bad mother in what she was trying to do in the shed by killing all of her children is that the ultimate act of kindness or is it something that is maybe selfish and and not thought all the way through i don't know cuz again Context is everything in this, right? Right. It's, you know, if they're captured and they're brought back, they're returned to, you know, a life of slavery, they're almost certainly going to be punished. And, you know, her children, she has no autonomy over them. You know, her children are, are property that whoever, you know, controls will decide wherever they go. And, yep. and I can understand the devastation that that would have of, you know, the the life that your that your child would have in front of them. Um, so I can certainly see in that like kind of mindset of that state of just despair and just utter seemingly hopelessness, you know, they're there, you're going to be captured. Um, what option do you have? I can understand how her mind takes that next step. Now, do I think that cutting off a toddler's head with a hacksaw is mercy? No. Um, (laughs) yeah. Uh, you don't say. No, I don't think that that is a, a merciful way to sort of protect your child or to 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 show your 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 thick love for them. Yeah. Um, but gosh, if I you know I understand. So let's say that's step five, right? Of yeah. you're formulating your plan and you're taking in everything, all your bits of information as to what you should do in this moment. And I understand steps one through four and five is it's it's a tough leap to make to the sure. I'm gonna kill all my kids and myself and that will save us. But at the same time, it's when you're suffering under that level of of distress and despair and just utter I don't know, utter 
just hopelessness in your situation. Like I get it. You know, the, the thing that I thought was, that was interesting is that she, she makes a comment, Setha herself on uh, page 194. And um, this is in the middle of that thick and thin love conversation when, when Paul D is, is fixing to walk out. Yeah. And Setha says um, in regards to, to her killing the kids or trying to, she says, it ain't my job to know what's worse. It's my job to know what is and to keep them away from what I know is terrible. I did that. Which I think tells you everything that you need to know about Setha's character and her mindset. She's, if she is only looking at what, what she knows and doesn't, doesn't look beyond it, she doesn't seem to grasp that uh, that her boys left not because you know of the house or anything. It's because she tried to murder them at one point. Yeah, like that is not like ever in the forefront of her mind with that amount of specificity at any point in the book. Yeah. Right? Denver is who she is for the same reason. Right? She is constantly. Of afraid, she's dreaming of of her mother, you know, killing her and and all of this kind of stuff because of because of what she did. Setha never seems to contemplate, you know, and and maybe she didn't think that she wasn't going to be successful in killing the kids, and yeah. you know, so so there's something there, but she also doesn't, you know, contemplate the fact that she escaped slavery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, her her mother in law was bought out of slavery. Even if her kids returned to that, even if she did, there is the potential that, you know, they would have the opportunity in the future to, you know, to get past those things. And yes, they might have to go through, you know, a a terrible, you know, grueling experience. Well, almost certainly, yeah. Right? Um, maybe maybe less so the kids than Setha herself by by school teachers' hands, but he's, you know, certainly an equal opportunity uh bad guy, as as it were. Um you know, but but there is the opportunity for for them, you know, to to, to make a life, and um, she she never contemplates the consequences of of her actions beyond, you know, this, you know, just the act of killing them and, and erasing them from from the world. She never contemplates what baby is is going to to think about all of it, right? Yeah. And how she becomes, you know, completely different person. She just contracts. Um, and, and withdraws from, from society and the whole community changes as a result. Yeah. And so I think that, that piece of dialogue tells you everything you need to know about Setha is she is very much in the moment and nothing beyond it. Yeah, I can agree with that. What do you think the point of this book is? That's a good question. Um, does it have a point? <laughs> because again, the thing too is, uh, I I don't know. I think if if it's anything, it it would have to do with just dealing with guilt and grief, um, and uh, seemingly trying to to get over something so horrific. Um, because again, at the end, we're left with sort of a pseudo happy ending. Yeah, I mean, as happy as it's happy for this book. Um, yeah, I think just mostly the point being uh, 
being dealing with grief, but using kind of the the backdrop of of slavery of, you know, the darkest, one of the darkest times in, in the, in the country's history, you know, and using, um, the backdrop of like slave experiences to deal with that, to, to, to show that, to show the different degrees of that, because, you know, although this book is about Setha and her grief and her actions and, and getting over that as well, you also get Paul D and all of the stuff that he's gone through and, yep. and, and how he's managed to deal with that and the community at large. And it's just, yeah, I mean, this is a book about sort of grief and and dealing with sort of the troubles of the horrible things that you've had to experience or that you've had to do and how do you move on with that. And because, you know, we see it with the relationship between Beloved and Seth that we just get this like kind of all-consuming, you know, if, if you say that Beloved is sort of the representation, the physical manifestation of her grief and, and how she's going to deal with it, then she just completely, you know, loses sight on everything else in her life and just goes all in on this. And yeah. It just sort of takes this, uh, this other, like, reminding incident, uh, a familiar incident to sort of jar that out of where she's sort of headed. And, and you know, I can see a lot of ties in with that on dealing with grief on on finding a way to not get so like overly consumed by it. So yeah, I mean if if there's anything that I would take away from this as far as like story-wise, what what's the point? It would be that. It would be getting over and dealing with grief. Yeah, I think that I think for me this this book about this book was about just sort of the danger of of love, right? And in every way possible, right? Love can, can drive you to murder, can drive you to, um, you know, taking, taking risks, um, like, you know, six Oh, um, you know, trying to, trying to escape with his 30 mile woman yeah. and, uh, and all the ways that that can go wrong. Yeah. And, you know, but, but, uh, there are obviously very dire consequences for that. Um, for you know a lot of a lot of the characters in in this book, but I, I think that you know still there is the freedom of of things is in the trying to do it right, and yeah. I, and I think for me that's that's kind of the heart. And as I finished things up, I was uh, I was thinking about um, the scene from uh, from early on. It's on. It was on page one hundred three. Uh, we're uh, baby is, is, uh, is preaching. Um, and she says, um, here in this here place, we flesh flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet and grass. Love it. Love it hard. Yonder. They do not love your flesh. They despise it. They don't love your eyes. They just as soon pick them out. No more do they love the skin on your back. Yonder. They flay it. And oh, my people do not love your, uh, they do not love your hands. They only use, tie, bind, chop off, and leave empty. Love your hands. Love them. Raise them up and kiss them. Touch others with them. Pat them. Stroke them on your face because they won't love that either. You've got to love it and you. And she keeps going, um, you know, for, for a while, just kind of going through different different things. But, you know, it's it's the risk in it, right? And and I think to me that that's that's sort of the whole point. That's what freedom allowed the the Setha to do, you know, with with her children. Um, 
and you know even even baby Suggs from from a different or from a distance you know with with her boys um so yes this book this book was a tough one man like i from from a reading point it was a tough yeah i'm the it's one of those things the book kind of got in its own way the style got in its own way of of really tackling you know an obviously like interesting topic in an interesting way yeah it's just it's so hard to get past that just wall that you have to break through you know in in it just doesn't let up there's never like a point in the book where you feel like you're like okay it's all downhill from here it's just it's uphill from from beginning to end and it's just that's that's just tough to read uh this is the first book that ever on the podcast i've legitimately been like i just I I just don't want to finish it, and yep. I want to like just switch books at the last minute. And obviously, we didn't. But yeah. Oh my goodness, this was the first one that seriously had me considering figuring some alternative plan out. But I got through it. You know, I'm I'm glad that I did for I guess self congratulatory reasons. I could pat myself and be like, oh yeah, I made it through, beloved. <laughs> I'm one of the elite few, but yeah, you know, it's. All, all in all, I, there is there's some good in here, but it's just it's so bogged down. Yeah, that it's so hard to to praise it overall. Well, but we're gonna have to. We're, we're gonna, gonna have to. We're gonna have to contextualize it somewhere on our bookshelf. Let's, let's let's do it. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, I mean, I feel I'll like you were right on the cusp. Yeah, I'll go first. Um, yeah, this is. It's not going on top shelf. It's not going on middle shelf. The question for me is, is this a donate or is this a bottom shelf book? Um, And that's tough because, like I said, I think there is a lot of good in here. Um, But it's such a chore just to get into it and get through it that I'm going to have to donate it just because I... I can't see myself recommending this to anybody uh, based on the way that I read, based on... Uh, the things that I like out of the books that I read, if, you know, people were to come to me for a suggestion, I would hope they would be assuming that kind of my criteria for the things that I like would meet any book that I suggest. And so I couldn't really suggest this book to anybody. I'm sure there are people out there that, I mean, they obviously there's a ton of people out there that love this book and um, have a completely different reaction to maybe the stylistic choices than we have. And good. I mean, that's that's books like this are written... Uh, not to be controversial is not the right word, but um, I feel like they are naturally polarizing when, when yeah. you talk about style choices and when you talk about just subject matter. I mean, subject matters, I don't know. That's not a thing for me in here, but uh, yeah, stylistically for sure. So yeah. unfortunately, I'm going to be donating it. It's been a long time since we've like completely disagreed on a book. Yeah. And I'm not going to part with that today. Uh, yeah, this is this is a hard donate for me. I would literally recommend this to nobody that I can that I can think of for for any reason. Um, and you know, I, I think that when you when you hold it up against a book like The Underground Railroad, um, and say you know you can you can approach difficult subjects and. And actual literature. I think both of these books are, are literary in their in their style. Yeah. 
it's it's really hard to to say that this book had anything more to offer than than a book like that. And I just uh, I, I I go back to the the Billy Madison uh, scene where he's uh, he's going through his like uh, like debate question and uh, he just gets blown up by the moderator. Uh, forget his his exact words, but uh, basically <laughs> says something along the lines. Weird. It's like that was we're the all, stupidest yeah. response I've ever heard. We're all now <laughs> dumber. Yeah, and, and that's a uh, simple no would have sufficed. Yes, yeah, and that's that's kind of that's kind of how I felt at the end of this. Is like, what the fuck? This 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 one, a Pulitzer, she is a Nobel Prize winning writer, and I have yeah. never disliked something like for for such good reasons. Like McCarthy, I like I just have like just a, a, a hater. Yeah, like it, but there is it. there is something about about him that just like irks me the wrong way. It's like music you just don't like for you know no sure. good reason. But yeah, like I have very finite like stylistic, you know, stuff with with this book that I just abhor. And you know, I I don't think that any anything else that we're presented with in the story um salvages that one bit. So yeah, yeah. I, I I literally recommend this book to nobody. And I'm not going to throw it away like I did Asimov. I literally threw Asimov in my recycling bin. I swear to God. So I'm not going to do that. Is that because have you softened up since then? Or is this is this not quite that level of anger? No, for, that's that's not quite that level of 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 anger. I don't think um, we're ever going to reach that. For As, Asimov was unless we purposely go looking for something like bad, that. like just like really really awful bad writing um this is not you know bad writing these are stylistic problems sure yeah um which which is why you know i'm willing to donate it let somebody else have it have its next life and and uh maybe it will it'll be better for somebody else than it was for me um all right next book next book's your pick next book is my pick sticking Uh, with our uh i guess sort of theme for the month although it's not really the month we might go a little bit past it and we obviously yeah. started a little bit before it but we're doing african-american authors yes we are um and so this one has been on my list for a while when when i, I started compiling a, a a list of books just to kind of have in case i ran into a situation where i was like uh i don't know what to read next um so this this has been on there for a while and then i i ran across it again when I was trying to, to work on my book for this month. And I was like, oh, shit, I forgot about this. This is on the list. So yeah. the book is Salvage the Bones by Jasmine Ward. Um, it's about um, a uh, poor um, African-American family living um, on, in, in like the, on the Gulf of Mexico in the days leading up to Hurricane Katrina. Um, so like one of the uh, one of the characters is pregnant and. Um, and uh, there's there's a whole bunch of, you know, just ancillary stuff going on as the you know hurricane kind of uh, bears down on on them. So super, super excited about this one. I think this won the National Book Award. Um, so it should be should be good. Although beloved, listen, beloved makes me a little scared now. Listen, I'm excited. So my uh, my beautiful, loving girlfriend decided for the first time ever to read along with us. And she started yeah. with Beloved. And so obviously I had to apologize to her for that. But um, <laughs> she you got me a copy of Salvage the Bones. Yeah. And uh, I lent that to her because she's she's, you know, speed reading. Yeah. Uh, but she, you know, she uh, we talked 
today and she was, you know, about 30, 40 pages in, she's like, oh, this is a book I could just, you know, like I could have just sat and read for like three or four hours. I was like, okay, well, that's good. I'm excited then. So I'm super excited about this book. Excellent. And then uh, we'll uh, we'll announce our our next book on Twitter uh, and, of course, in uh, in the next episode. Um, And then we're going to we're going to mix things up. I've got uh, some interesting things planned, I think, for the for the month of uh, of March. We're almost in March. It's We're almost in March. So We're almost halfway through February. It's crazy. It is wild to think we got, about that. We got Valentine's Day, I guess, this week, whenever the the, yeah. the book comes out. You got big plans, you and the wife? Uh, So, no. Why, my, my wife and I have never celebrated Valentine's Day in any way. Right on, form. brother. It's it's the greatest, man. I was, I was watching the news the other day, and uh, I, they did a segment on Valentine's Day and how much each generation spends um, for their partners. Is it just like increasing? So millennials spend a ridiculous amount of money, and I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but I mostly remember it. The average person in our generation spends like something like $289 for Valentine's Day. Oh, man, I'm all about the like... You make your own card, and it's just you kind of just you just word vomit whatever's in your mind, sure. like about this person. You know, you just want to share it with them, and just like little tokens. And I feel like that so much more than anything else. Just goes so much further as far as like uh, expressing that. Well, one thing I would say you shouldn't get your Valentine is a book called Beloved, thinking it might be about. A mushy thing, and it would just yeah, be a not a sweet, romance novel. Not not a romance novel. Uh, that is our episode. Thank you for listening. Next episode will be on uh, "Salvage the Bones" by Jesmyn Ward. And until next time.